But we begin this evening with a major exhibition currently running at the University of Galway, which celebrates the legacy of the university's first professor of Irish. It's called Culture and Citizenship, Tomás O'Molia. A folklore and song collector, newspaper editor, linguist and teacher, Tomás O'Molia was a pioneer in many ways. As we'll hear, he always looked towards the future, and his greatest foresight was a commitment to the newest technology of his day, audio recording. It diverges considerably from modern standards, but that recording was made by Omolia in 1929. It's of Maureen Scully singing a song that many will recall from their school days on Lombov is on Gershok. And uh, Omolia created hundreds of recordings of Irish speakers from every county in Connacht and also in County Clare. Nearly 100 years after they were first captured, wax cylinder recordings held in the University of Galway Library were digitized digitised last year with support from Ryan Lagoeltukta. These historic recordings, like the one we just heard, are now being made available online. And to talk about the life and work of Tomás Omolia, I'm joined by Deirdre Nicunila, the digital curator of the project. Deirdre, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Now, we just heard the voice of one of the best-known Irish-language singers of the 20th century, and uh, there's a possibility, there's a good chance, actually, that that is the earliest recording that exists of her. Tell us a little bit about uh, Maura Nisculli. Well, Maura Scully was from Dublin originally, but she moved to Galway as a young woman and made her life there. She married a man who was a, a colleague of Thomas Amole in the university, and so she was a surprise amongst the recordings and also there was no label on the recordings. So that gives an idea for your listeners of the role that I'm playing in the development of the Wax Cylinder collection, where uh, sometimes we don't know what voice is on it, if there's a, a labelling or a mislabeling or no label at all to go with the particular recording. There are over 500 audio tracks, individual tracks, performances of songs and uh, stories and prayers and sometimes yarns in this archive and it's a job of work to uh, go through them. It's a, a collaborative effort. You've got the archives team in the library and then I'm something of an interlocutor then relying on scholarship and connections and also the community as well, sometimes to, to speak with people in all six counties that are represented and try and figure out who are all of these uh, singers and performers. A labour of love, I'm sure, but obviously definitely not easy. So let's talk a bit about Omolia's own background. He came from an Irish-speaking family in Connemara and was also deeply involved in the Republican movement. That's right, yes. Uh, born in 1880, so uh, very much a member of that revolutionary generation. And at the launch of the exhibition that we had in, uh, on the 30th of September last, Gareth Jotui, Professor Emeritus of History at the University in Galway, spoke very well, giving some context for Omolia's emergence. There's still research waiting to be done, really, on the families and, I suppose, key figures in the west of Ireland and coming from Gwelthoth communities as well and from rural backgrounds. So Omolia was one of nine children born in the Mam Valley 
to a prosperous farming family and they were interested in education and in, uh, I suppose, status, uh, as Gareth had pointed out in his remarks, that they were coming to the fore when that question of independence and of citizenship as well was uh, very much uh, in the ether. And Omalia's education at home and then in Dublin and on to Liverpool, Manchester and the continent. And eventually by 1909, he has a PhD in linguistics of all things. But that was part of the development of the Irish language and it being recognised as a language of the world and uh, worthy of study and of a place in society as well. So he's formed very much by the cultural milieu at the time and then by the political milieu. So his brothers are members of the volunteers. Horik, his brother, was in the first stall, was on the hillsides in Connemara in the War of Independence. And Thomas isn't necessarily with say politically active member he's not out with a, a guns on a hillside for instance but very much on the ideological side of the movement thinking about what it might mean for the people around them and in the country to have a, a nation of their own but interesting to see nonetheless that while he's in a professorship in the ivory tower of a university so to speak he's not in danger of being sequestered in a way because he's very much out with the community he's deputising for his brother when the Daw loan is being set up in 1919 so very interesting figure because we might imagine scholars to be sequestered in a way but when we look at Thomas's life and work he's very much embedded in the communities around him both in the rural communities throughout the west of Ireland and also in Galway City. Now, he obviously would have been in some danger himself during the, the Civil War. His brother, Porik Omalia, was, was targeted and on occasions the threat to a particular individual would spread to his family, to members of his family. Yes, and in Tomás's case, one of the key concerns, I suppose, for the authorities was that by then he's the editor of an Irish language newspaper on Stuck, which was established in 1917. And he was editing that right up until 1931. The printing house was actually attacked by the authorities. So then for a period, the paper couldn't print. And in Galway in late 1920, when things were getting particularly hot, he headed west really for fear of, of his life, that he might be targeted and was out in Connemara then in 1921 when the most famous incident of the War of Independence in Connemara in April, Ka Wintedon as it's known, where their family home, which was effectively the headquarters for the West Connemara Flying Column, uh, was attacked and that whole period Thomas actually documented in one of the few Irish language books about the War of Independence, Untumid uh, So he's observing all of that. And then also because he has that platform in the university of being a figure and an intellectual figure, he doesn't shy away from holding political opinions and also seeing the role of identity and cultural identity and language in that emergence of citizenship. Let's talk about his linguistic activities. He became involved in a project to do a survey of different types of Irish, different dialects of Irish in Ireland. We think in broad terms of there being three different dialects, Ulster, uh, Connacht and Munster, but there were actually far more. And he worked with a German linguist, Dr. Wilhelm Dögen. Tell us about that project. 
So O'Malley, as I say, had trained as a linguist and he himself had been collecting right throughout his life, interested in song and folklore in general, but then also this scholarly interest in sort of the, the minutiae of dialects. And so it's interesting to see the practice of that, that initially they're just relying on a manuscript and writing things down and IPA to track all of that and map it. But then, of course, early 20th century, we have recording technologies coming to the fore. So the connection with Wilhelm Dögen, who was a, a well-known German linguist who had actually collected dialects in prisoner of war camps in the First World War on the continent, in the early 1920s, in the wake of the Gueltacht Commission, there was an initiative established by the government with the support of the Royal Irish Academy to map the Irish language and its dialects throughout the country. Uh, the focus mainly being Ulster, Connacht and uh, Munster with the, to uh, recognise both the dialects and the strongholds. So Dugan was the authority for all of this. But of course, he was very reliant on the local experts. And in Connacht and the west of Ireland, that meant Thomas O'Malley. So Dugan's project began in 1928, ran until 1931. But interestingly, O'Malley was already recording before Dugan's project ever reached Galway. O'Malley had an Ediphone recording machine for wax cylinders by the summer of 1928. And he's already recording from then right up to 1930 when they have this very hectic two-week period in early September of 1930 on campus. And they're, in effect, bringing the mountain to Mohammed. So O'Malley is coordinating the logistics to bring scores of singers and storytellers to the campus to perform for the recording device. OK, we're going to hear another short excerpt from one of O'Molia's recordings. This is Porik O'Hara from the Ox Mountains in South Sligo, spinning a yarn. A little bit more about that recording, Deirdre, of uh, Porik O'Hara from uh, the Ox Mountains in Sligo. Well, Porik is one of a, a generation of Irish speakers who were native Irish speakers in Sligo and there were native speakers there right up until the 1950s. And in this pocket of the Ox Mountains, kind of, sort of surrounded by Mayo in a way, there were a number of performers there. So Porik is telling a, a story ostensibly from his own life and it's a very funny story about he... He had intended to go and visit some young girl of the locality and they'd made a date, so to speak. But then he had a friend who waylaid him and they went on another visit and it didn't end well. They got attacked by a dog or something like that. So <laughs> so it's very comical. But um, for me, who's sitting down and listening to these and trying to figure out what it is they're saying, your ear becomes accustomed. Uh, you know, you get past the hiss and maybe hesitations and things and you sort of tune into the story and and it's amazing because you know audio is so powerful it can really transport people and they can sort of be there with the performer some of the voices are very old as well we've got people that are born in the mid 19th century you're talking voices from the famine period as well so for me it's an just an extraordinary privilege to sit with these materials and really listen to them for the first time in uh, nearly 100 years and O'Malley's own recordings were a little bit less formal than, than Dugan's recordings, though, than what Dugan was looking for. 
Well, O'Malley had he had a certain breadth, uh, leeway maybe to in, indulge in different interests, perhaps. I mean, he, he was interested in obviously the linguistics and the clarity of the recording was going to matter in that case. But for a linguist, they also need the speaker to be very comfortable with what they're sharing. So that's one of the reasons they pick songs and stories that maybe they're performing on a regular basis. But also there's the rapport that you build up with the performer. And there's one performer, singer and storyteller who had come in from near Mount Bellew in, in East Galway, Tom Vatolohan. And he ended up actually composing a song about the day that he went all the way into the college to be recorded. He called it Oran Nagernin and it was collected from him years later. But he described how they were being, uh, you know, there was a glass being poured for for a performer he saw there. And when he then got his turn, he said, now, come on, fill up my glass there, please. <laughs> so um, it was a real occasion for uh, people coming together. But at, at the same time, the, the seriousness behind it as well, you can hear the performers just really celebrating that moment of acknowledgement and authority of their own as performers and of the songs and the stories that they held to have their own voice put on record. And there's another recording, I mean, I've mentioned recording happening on campus, but there's also evidence when we start listening to them in detail that he's off campus, that he's actually conducting fieldwork. And another extraordinary recording that I listened to was recorded, I think, in 1929 in Eris in northwest Mayo. So that's a fair trek. And it's a man who's singing a song about the Cleggan disaster that had happened in 1927, specifically its impact in Inishgay, the islands just offshore. So this is contemporary reportage, effectively. And the Cleggan disaster is what we call the, the storm that hit in October 27 and came unexpectedly. And there were lots of island and coastal communities all along uh, the Galway and Mayo coast that were caught where they were out fishing and for Inishgay, for instance, lost 10 young men because they were caught unawares and all of those communities up and down the coast would have been impacted by that. So song was one of the ways that those communities memorialised their own history because they were out on the outskirts and it might not have reached uh, newspapers and also the sense of their own experience being captured in song and even the context of it, what it might mean, why it would have happened, the loss. So Omalia, the fact that he's capturing items like that, it's not just about the linguistics. He's very conscious of the role that technology can play in those communities, in their lives. And that's a very modern thought at that time. But he's obviously very interested in language, in the Irish language, professor of Irish, a linguist. Was he concerned about the possible homogenisation of Irish? Is that the reason why he's attempting to record as many different dialects as possible? Well, it's interesting because he was in favour of the effort to standardise Irish. He saw the value in having a standardised form of the language to allow it to grow and move forward and, and maybe bring all of these communities together. But at the same time, he saw, also saw the value in the different dialects and also the vocabulary that would go with those different dialects. So he, he wants to achieve both and he, also, he believes that they can coexist. And in today, we do have that coexistence. Sometimes it can be a bit uncomfortable for particular accents and dialects. But again, just a, a modern viewpoint on that. And one of his most famous books, and it was republished in, in recent years, is Unbailed Bill, The Living Mouth. And it's full of idiom 
from particularly the west of Ireland because that was his own forte and it's still a resource for Irish speakers today. Let's hear another excerpt from a recording. This is the man named Stefan Odrainon from Galway. Stefano Drynon there from Galway. Do you have to tell us something about that recording? So that's Stefano Drynon from Cushmig Moor, one of the villages in the Furbacha in Galway. So that was reasonably close to the campus in Galway City for Omalia to possibly go and visit him or even the other way around as well. So one of many performers that are featured in the collection and there'll be other people from the different communities and families as well. Like we're starting to track down the relatives of some of the performers as well. And part of the exhibition in Galway is that we have our own contemporary singers today, Shano singers, who have responded to the to the Omalia audio archive and have shared contemporary performances of the same songs. So you're able to listen and connect these over two centuries, effectively, uh, to connect and show how that song tradition and the language practice and its performance tradition as well is alive and well. Now, you've also come across one recording which I think would be of huge interest to scholars of the War of Independence, and that's an account of the murder of Father Michael Griffin, who was a, a priest by the Crown forces in Galway in 1920. Yes, so really the, the label reads Mara Friu on Tahiro Grifo. So it is about the recovery of Father Griffin's body in Barna. The speaker is a man from Barna, Thomas McDonagh. And when I came across a reference to this recording first, I was really struck by it because I thought this predates Ernie O'Malley's work in the 1950s because you have O'Malley, who's from a Republican family, and he's clearly speaking with somebody who, who was also on the Republican side because they're sharing this testimony. And it is testimony is the word where it's 1929. So it's just over eight years after Father Griffin's death. And the same man sings songs as well. But this, when he decides to share this excerpt, they're going beyond the linguistic and the folkloristic here. They're moving into historical testimony. Unfortunately, I know listeners would love to listen to the track, but it is very, very indistinct. And the reason for that is because it's one of the earliest ones and they're still getting used to the technology and trying to produce the best quality recording. But there's a tantalising little bit in the middle and I was able to understand meaning at the stroke of midnight. <laughs> so I can just imagine the this dramatic retelling of the experience at that time. So I, I need to listen to it again and see if I can interpret a bit more of that particular recording. And Griffin was one of three priests killed during the, the War of Independence, wasn't he? One of only three. And his death in Galway was hugely shocking. It was reported in the New York Times. People spoke about it. There were 12,000 people at his funeral as well. There, were, there was a particularly notorious band of auxiliaries and, and black and tans in Galway at the time. And 
they had committed all sorts of atrocities, this being one of them. But it just goes to show the the level of fear that there was in the community at the time and why Omola himself would have just removed himself from the city, given uh, what was going on at the time. And despite being from a family with a pro-treaty Republican background, he was on the committee that drew up uh, Bunroch the Heron, the Constitution in 1937. Yes, they were revising the Constitution at the time. And of course, the the significant element of, of that effort was that Irish was to gain primacy in this particular iteration. And so the question of translation or co-raid of, of balancing both versions of the Constitution was hugely significant. And O'Malley being a leading scholar of the Irish language in the country at the time, and naturally with his own keen sense of awareness of politics as well, was one of the, there were a team of people that were contributing to that work. But it is interesting to see, you know, when we're looking at that generation post-Civil War period and the various allegiances and still that relationships in spite of political preferences, that relationships nonetheless were kept alive and still in favour of trying to bring the, the country forward. And so, yes, there's uh, De Valera is is there, part of that as well, and writing to O'Malley uh, when he's going to go and visit Dublin to engage in that work. He died in 1938. He was very young. He was only in his 50s. And you sense that he could have done so much more, especially as technology advanced. Absolutely. Um, In 1935, he actually had secured a grant of £300 from the National University of Ireland to expand on his collecting work. And it would appear, I I haven't found the smoking gun to prove this yet, but it would appear that that some of that money was invested in a new recording device, a disc recorder. So again, the technology is improving all the time because recording actually was continued immediately after his death on campus because there's references in the papers to other people being recorded on this disc recorder. However, at that stage, he dies January 38. Second World War breaks out and also the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies was set up by de Valera in 1940 and they had an Irish language and linguistics element as part of that. And so in a sense, Dev stole Galway's thunder in a way and the effort that there was Immediately after Thomas O'Malley's death to establish an institute of linguistics in Galway, it fell apart and the energy dissipated somewhat. And so that also accounts for the fact that the uh, wax cylinder recordings remained undeveloped for so long after that technology was moving on and then different interests were being uh, pursued as well. But thankfully, they've been digitised in the nick of time. Far on Himular Fod, the Carmina Mahagut, that exhibition at the University of Galway is called Culture and Citizenship, the Moss O'Malia. It runs until early December. You can find out more about O'Malia and listen to some of his recently digitised recordings at uh, universityofgalway.ie forward slash Tomas O'Malia. That's T O M A S O M A I L L E. My guest was uh, Deirdre Ni Conila, uh, Arish Deirdre Carmina Mahagut. Gotta be in the mouth, Miles.